I'm so excited. And mm-hmm. we're going to talk about like one of our favorite people. I think we can all agree here. One of our <laughs> favorite people in history, but I want to know how like your PhD is going. Yeah. Okay. Do you guys want the, the <laughs> gloss, the happy gloss answer or <laughs> the real answer? Give us the happy gloss answer, but show true pain in your eyes. Yeah. Okay. So that way we can feel. <laughs> <laughs> going great starts doing morse code (laughs) blinking asking for help she gets the twitch she gets the twitch in her eye (laughs) yeah always it's a permanent fixture these days so (laughs) Um, it's fine i'm really excited for it to be over (laughs) yeah how long Um, have you been doing it like a a year too long bethany too long (laughs) this is she's just started her second year yeah um no we're we're almost done with the first semester okay melissa i've not just started (laughs) don't make me like start crying (laughs) she's like is this all a dream was it a dream do i have to start this over (laughs) yeah it's like when you tell a kid like you know oh you're only nine and they're like no i'm eight and a half (laughs) yeah i'm all, like, you know, um, i'm nine and three yeah, like quarters. those months those months mean something they mean yeah something. i put yeah, a lot right. of work in those months yeah. okay so don't take them away melissa yeah. <laughs> I'm, sorry. I'm sorry time is just meaningless when you're like relatively self-employed and don't wake up until three in the afternoon <laughs> i'm wearing the same clothes i used to wear before, like months ago but now they're in style i know nothing's changed for me we were, yeah. we were talking about this the other day. We're calling it officially soup season. Soup like, season, yes. I can't, yeah. uh, like, we're excited that we can wear clothes that match soup season. Yeah. yeah. This is wearing. the color of the soup that I even ate earlier. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like a nice not lying. tomato basil. I don't want to know that. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is my green acorn squash. Love uh, it. Soup. You literally yeah. look like green acorn squash. I'm you, yeah. um, thank you. Uh, Taylor, you look like, like a red bean stew. Yeah. Ooh, or a yes, minestrone yeah. but i think i i, I get bean vibe from yeah that sweater like a I, kidney bean i am a vegetarian yeah. so i'm yeah. not a soup i'm an oreo <laughs> 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 which i'm yeah. not gonna lie are in my kitchen <laughs> yeah yeah that's still acceptable bethany yeah. that's a um, great like fall if you food. add it to ice cream and then kind of like do like a nine-year-old like mash it up and kind of mix it, it up could be and, like, soup it, it could be soup yep <laughs> Dude, when I was a I'm, kid, I used to do that's how I, I used to eat ice cream. I used to mix it up until it was like soft serve and then yeah, be like, like mm, good soup. Like <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> mm, noodle soup. Yeah. <laughs> nice. That's because I have sensitive teeth. I can't <laughs> bite ice cream. Oh, I don't no, I can't either. Yeah. yeah which no. just means which means you ate too much ice cream or sugar. Right? Yeah, like that's okay. my teeth and- have always been sensitive whatever Do you know if you have a brain freeze just put your thumb on the roof of your mouth it's my teeth that like my teeth like hurt oh yeah i don't know that... it's the fillings yeah that makes sense <laughs> that makes sense yeah then why, is... don't have... <laughs> why don't i it's have because i don't think you give your chance to like your body the chance to feel the pain maybe go to yeah. the same chiropractor okay we go to the same chiropractor and Taylin gets beat 
up and afterwards she's like I guess I feel better like she doesn't feel any of it and the lady does the same things to me and like I can't always like move my shoulders afterwards I need it I definitely need it but do you have like do you have like a high pain tolerance or like I don't know that Taylin feels pain because I'm like always craning my neck for it bleeding and it's like now it's like made of steel it's so hard rock hard it's like it's not good so (laughs) You know, like some people are more ticklish than others. I found out from, I think it was a masseuse several years back that like the, what makes it ticklish is the tightness in your muscle. And so, cause like when you press like either on like your neck or your, your sides, or sometimes like, you know, how like guys used to do like the, like kind of a top of the knee, like where it meets the thigh. And that it means that they love you. No. Well, that's what we thought. Because <laughs> exactly. the muscle is so tight. And so like, there's definitely odd spots in my body that are ticklish because of that. I try pressing those spots on Taylin sometimes to like, see how tight she is. She doesn't feel them. (laughs) They feel like she feels nothing with it because she's so tight that it's just like surpassed tickling. I'm not proud of this into the void. She's body's just straight entered the void. It really has (laughs) not, not to, um, reinforce the foot fetish theme on our <laughs> account but like I I have I can't I can't get a pedicure anymore because oh, yeah. I I'm too loud like <laughs> <laughs> like I'm just well, like I'm like yeah! like oh! <laughs> like, <"Yeah."> <laughs> like I can't do it and and Milo gives me foot rubs often like it's not mm-hmm. it's not that I never get my feet touched I just have really sensitive feet well you also like I found, I found, oh, I realized this one after going to the chiropractor is like, you have to have hard pressure sometimes yes. like, cause it ha- you have to push it past yeah, the it. limit. Like, yeah. With my feet, when I get pedicures, I have to tell them, please press hard. Otherwise I will laugh. Yeah. It's like, it's like hard or nothing. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> I would do this. No, oh, no. Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, I would I, like, I would say the same thing, like tell, tell them to go hard, but actually I bruise so easily. I'm like, oh, a, yeah. I'm like oh. an oxymoron. Like I bruise really, really easily, but I also, yeah, well, you're like, anything. your blood's too thick. It is actually, it's been tested. It's too thick. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, there's this like episode of friends where Phoebe, um, well, Monica wants a massage. So Phoebe's like, oh, I'll do it. And yeah. so she just got that like at home business at the time. And so she goes over and she does it. And Monica like moans the whole time. Yeah, she makes sex noises. <laughs> yeah, and so like Phoebe's like, I can't do it anymore. I just can't do it. So that's yeah, that's that's you, Bethany. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm too loud. <laughs> you have to do it in the privacy of your own home. You yeah, monogamously. There, there can't be. Any, I can't. There can't be anyone around. Like, yeah. <laughs> she even closes the windows. Yeah, so the, I put the cats the in the in the closet. Like, yeah. oh my god. <laughs> no. <laughs> all right so, <laughs> now that we've like, so we are in, in we're, bed with books <laughs> and uh, y- y'all know us thoroughly now <laughs> yeah yeah um oh yeah this is like okay yep. a real episode um <laughs> <laughs> um we're in bed with books i'm bethany i am melissa and we're joined today with Taylin Nelson again to talk about our favorite lady. Um, since we all went and did the same program at King's 18th century studies, we all eventually come across 
the wonderful Mary Wollstonecraft. So we're going to yep. kind of talk about her. Um, and uh, yes, but meanwhile, you can find us on Instagram at in bed with books pod. We're also on YouTube. If you want to watch us talk about film and see our faces, um, we put the video versions on there. So, but yeah, so how do we want to start? I was kind of wondering if we wanted to like, kind of talk about her, like, yeah, I think a little, or? give a little bit of context for her, yeah. for people who don't know, like all of the dirty details. Yeah. But because I also think she's one of the women who fully walked the walk when it came to yes. her philosophies mm-hmm. and it definitely put some of her arguments into a much better context. So, yes. Does anybody want to start? Nope. Okay. Um, <laughs> where to begin? He's like, yes. No, I mean, I was just like, I didn't know how much, I didn't know if anyone wanted to chime in. Um, well, she, I don't know. I think she was born at some point and then. Well, wait, really? <laughs> just kidding. I don't remember what Real year. Real quick, Bethany, how do you know so much about her? Um, well, I wrote my dissertation on her. Bingo. Okay. Thank you. So we're all proud of you for that. Yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Um, so I, I read, I read a lot of her stuff. I also read a really good book, which I want to recommend to anyone who's interested in Wollstonecraft, but also her daughter, Mary, Mary Shelley. Um, it's called romantic outlaws. Is this backwards? No, at least not. Maybe it'll be backwards to me. Yeah, no, it looks good to me. Probably backwards in the recording. Um, the Extraordinary Lives of Mary Wollstonecraft and Mary Shelley. It's wonderful uh, by Charlotte Gordon. And I like it because one chapter is Wollstonecraft. One chapter is Shelley and on and on. Um, and it's written in a very narrative way, but mm-hmm. also like gives you a lot of like context and background. Um, it's really, it's really good read. Um, but she uh, grew up, I think, in uh, like the King's Cross area, Spitalfields maybe yeah um in london and um trying to remember she uh her father was a drunk and her um beat her mother and so there was like a lot of times when she would she would stand in front of her um mother's bedroom to keep him from coming in there's definitely a lot of like understanding about like why she fought for what she wanted to fight for Mm -hmm. um but she met a lot of people along the way. I'm not going to go like into too much detail about who it was, but um, that like supported her. Um, she ended up starting a school with her sisters and educating women. Um, uh, she was very influenced by um, the Blood family, which is her best friend was Fanny Blood. Um, and I think um, I think it was her father that like encouraged her to write education on the daughters of women correct me if i'm wrong someone did i can't remember the names fanny's father or her own father fanny's fanny's father or fanny mr blood (laughs) i can't remember i think no no that's that's fair i just i wanted to i was i want to make sure it wasn't her yeah mary's father um and uh once she started uh the the school and wrote the education of on daughters um, she kind of uh, gained a little traction and kind of uh, she was she got exposed to a lot of uh, circles and kind of rose into these circles of uh, dissenters and uh, the Commonwealth men who were very interested in like the Scottish Enlightenment and, um, you know, uh, like uh, the dissenters like Reverend 
Richard Price, who was um, very outspoken about the um, rights of man, um, and uh, Joseph Johnson, who she she described as being like a like a father or a brother to her to her. Um, he published the Analytic Review and published her in it, and so that's where all of most of her works are being published was through Joseph Johnson. Um, but uh, yeah, her most. I guess we could all agree that she is probably the mother of feminism in the Western yeah. world. Um, she is, she is most known for a vindication of the rights of women. Does anybody want to talk about that work before we get further into her story? <laughs> um, yeah, I, so I think one thing that gets kind of convoluted I would say when you say things not you specifically but like when it's said that she's mm-hmm. the mother of modern modern feminism is that like it's putting like the onus on her but in reality like she started the conversation not that the conversation didn't already exist mm-hmm. like it definitely existed in some way she's not the first person to have had these thoughts or she's not the only person at this time to have had these thoughts but the fact that she got published with them is huge mm-hmm Yes. And the fact that like we're still reading it now shows kind of the like the weight of her arguments. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would not say that they're all perfect. There's like rereading it now, like I I'm engaging mm-hmm. with it in a much different way than I did originally. And even back then, like some of my old notes, because this is like a pre <laughs> this was annotated originally when we read it for class, but mm-hmm. also now that I read it again. Um there's like there's definitely parts when what we would recognize today as white feminism is coming out that kind of like, she's not necessarily defying the system. Mm -mm. It's it's not like, uh, what is it? What am I trying to say? Like it's her arguments aren't trying to break it down and rebuild a new one. It's definitely like trying to engage with the pre-existing kind of structures. Mm -hmm. But that being said, it's still such a radical, like the fact that this, which we would now recognize is not even that, that revolutionary was revolutionary at the time is in and of itself, like a huge deal. Yeah. Yeah. I would, um, I would add to that, that she was, she was radical at the time, not only for her ideas, but the way in which she articulated them yeah. and the spaces in which she filled, mm-hmm. um, this group of dissenters and circles that she was part of, she was the only woman um, in England until she went to France and she found some more ladies. Um, But generally she was like the only woman talking about this. Um, And I can talk a little bit later about it, but she uses the way in which she writes and the way and the form and styles that she uses is very masculine Mm -hmm. while also including a feminine style, figurative style that, is deemed feminine. So there, there were a lot of women writing, but they were writing letters mm-hmm. and, you know, nice poems and think, you know, uh, memoirs or things that were a little bit more um, traditionally um, feminine genres at the time, but she was doing philosophy, historical, like um, a very explicitly male political yes. male space. Exactly. Yeah. So, and it's one thing. So like the women that she would have met in France, might have been engaging in those kinds of conversations, like literal conversations in terms of like verbal face-to-face, maybe even like letter con- conversations. But very rarely would they have been engaging with it in 
public long form prose work like this mm-hmm. yeah um and not like i'm not saying that they didn't want to that they didn't try and i can't like because i can't say whether or not they did but she was the one who got published and like disseminated to this extent and and specifically within as, as bethany said like within this kind of male um language and male context mm-hmm. within this conversation that has been up until this point dominated by men male philosophers like i'm thinking of um emmanuel kant in his mm-hmm. what is enlightenment and he says that like people need to stop being cowardly and lazy and need to kind of like take control of you know um themselves and their rights uh mm-hmm. but then he immediately follows it up with the caveat well except for women because they can't yeah. do that right mm-hmm. so this is kind of direct speaking to that um, mm-hmm. and directly engaging with that as well as of course um, Jean-Jacques Rousseau who she is for a, a good portion uh, for anyone who reads this it is um, a sick burn yeah. of Rousseau for a, a couple of portions um, of the text and so she's directly engaging with the specific text of his which is um, Amelie am I pronouncing that right what, what yes. is it Amelie E-M-I-L-E so it's I think so it's his oh text on education yes. for children as well. And so she's, yeah. because like um, the majority of this tract is really engaging with education. She has some really strong opinions to say not only about children's education, but also about women's education. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then I think that's all to say like very specifically that like a lot of the critique against some of her rhetoric is I would say founded. Like I, I, I don't disagree with the, the critique no. on some of the, the passages when she does get aggressively uh, sexist, um, or when she uses metaphors that are possibly—I wouldn't even say possibly, but like definitely questionable metaphors relating to slavery and things. And it's not to defend those actions, but rather like historically recognizing that because she's entering this this male-dominated conversation. She's also going to use those male dominated kind of methods. Yeah. And that's that's just gonna come through. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah. Especially yeah. if you spend that much time with a group full of only men, like it's gonna happen, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, one of the one of the conventions she really lays down thick is marriage. She mm-hmm. And I didn't mention this in her very brief biography, <laughs> yeah. but she watched her mother's marriage. She watched her sister's marriage. She actually grabbed her sister and her like six, less than a year old child. No, left the child actually took her sister because she was so depressed and like took her away from her husband essentially, which is, you know, pretty baffling for the time. Um, yeah. And and they went and started a new school because her sister was just going mad. Um, yeah. So she was very much spoke out against marriage. Um, I think a little bit later in her writing career is she kind of eventually got to that point. Um, and that comes in even with in the, the revolution when she's in Paris, there's this really cool, there was this really cool point in time before kind of shit went haywire um, yeah. where women could um, own land. They, everyone was having affairs and it was fine she was in this like really great circle of like of like people who were like there was this one lady she that was like french and she just wore like writing gear all the time and just had a sword it was like really like intense 
Yeah. Like she was like, we yeah. should butcher the king, you know, like <laughs> she was like really like into it. And so there was just like, I mean, that was very short lived. And then they were all and then it became very, very anti feminist. But yeah, so she she really felt at home in that space. That was probably the one time she felt like she was, you know, original. She felt um, like she was seen as an intellectual being, not just a woman. Um, I don't, I wonder, cause we were talking about religion earlier. And so I'm kind of interested in that discussion. And that was definitely something um, her daughter and Percy Shelley, like tried to relive, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, marriage is such an interesting conversation, I think with Wollstonecraft, because I, I think it's like many people obviously commented on the fact that she wrote this extremely feminist tract and later, you know, married the anti-matrimonialist and yeah. anarchist of the time, uh, William Godwin. And so, and also yeah. like, you know, neither of them, it, it's funny because both of them don't really believe in a tr- traditional marriage. Um, he didn't believe in marriage at all, William Godwin, and she believed it should be a partnership. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, it, it, it's a very interesting kind of uh, like public relationship it became, especially after her death, when he wrote her kind of uh, like her biography, many people kind of criticized him and um, especially because of her kind of sordid, uh, like uh, sordid mm-hmm. in the, in the, uh, in the sense of like how it was perceived at the time. Yeah. To us, we think she's a badass. We're like, yeah. way to go. Get that Gilbert Imlay. We love yeah, that. Yeah. Even though he was a dick, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like, um, but a lot of people were shocked that he would public publicly publish on her kind of her her varied kind of love life and, and past and acknowledge it and still honor her in that way. So mm-hmm. it it's I, fascinating. I find that, yeah. I well, I find it interesting because like on the one hand, it does feel kind of like this post-mortem like burn. Like this kind of like, well, in, in like this kind of like angered grief kind of like thing, but at the same time, like you're saying, they, their relationship was based on their philosophies regarding, regarding marriage, which like, granted there are, that's still like a huge hot subject, marriage within like the feminist within feminist circles and feminist discourse, because you have like the long tradition of it subjugating women because of like legal stances but at the same time like it in its own way doesn't have to depending on the partnership and all of this stuff and so I actually I go back and forth on this but at at this current moment when we're (laughs) recording this I I kind of like that he did that because he was Mm -hmm. like look at this woman I loved yeah yeah and that I still love I feel like remarried but like yeah I, I agree like that's kind of a good way I think it was kind of, this is what they stood for and this is what they fought for. And it was kind of like, um, kind of a last word. Um, Mm -hmm. it it was just really unfortunate about how it was received. Um, but, but, um, because she was essentially wiped from the canon for a hundred years, for 150, 200 years. Mm Um, and I, I feel like we we should talk about that at some point about how yeah, that's have been affected. Um, if he hadn't, if he'd have kept it in, that would have shown more for like the shame that he felt towards it. And I don't think he wanted to feel shame about what the, what mm-hmm. they stood for. You know? Yeah. No, definitely not. Yeah. 
if there was anything to be said about that family, it's that they lived their lives. They did yes. not. Yeah. They <laughs> lived by their philosophies. They that's did. for sure. Yeah. They oh, yeah. did. Yeah. But I think like in terms of marriage in vindications, it is very interesting. And I think very exciting, even still now, um, to read kind of what she says. Like I, I have like a quote here, if I can share. Um, yeah. So, um, one thing that's really interesting about this text is it's definitely looking at kind of the female identity and how it is formed and how it is kind of based off of this conception, this idealized kind of conception of how women ought to be. Um, and obviously this is kind of, you know, the, one of, I think how this is connecting to marriage is that it's, it's coming from their husbands. Right. Um, and so I think that's the way she's trying to access this conversation with the women readers of this Mm -hmm. text. So like, um, there's this kind of concept of like women serving their husbands. And this is also something that she's addressing in, uh, in like an attack with Rousseau. Yeah. Because he is talking about, um, how, you know, boys should be educated, but girls should just learn to be pretty and, um, you know, no, learn talent. Yeah. Learn that's one of the words he uses. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And learn how to serve their husband, like, you know, learn Mm -hmm. how to serve and to be, you know, useful in that term, in that sense. And that's kind of the specific mindset that Wollstonecraft is opposed to. And it's kind of like, what's, yeah, what's driving her to write this in reaction to Amelie? Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. you know, and the quote was, you know, it, it proposed a model of female education aimed at making girls useful to men. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this is what she's against, right? And so it, this is where, like, um, marriage is kind of coming into it. Because obviously at the time, like like you guys have said, women were bound by law to, like, abandoned their individual interests. They had to serve their husbands. It was English common law. And mm-hmm. so women were held to like a different standard in kind of all senses of the term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I like what you said, Taylin, about um, specifically when like you, you made this point about like when she's talking to women in the text, mm-hmm. because this is another reason that I think people don't acknowledge like <gasps> why she gets shit on quite as much is because she has two audiences with this one like the men within her uh her kind of group of dissenters as well as people outside of that because i like you can you know for a fact she wanted russo to read this (laughs) oh Um, definitely so like men are very much as equal in her like the weight of the audience that she's giving as women are so she kind of navigates this like sentence by sentence, almost not even paragraphs always of talking to men at one point And then the next phrase talking to women, which I think like, I wouldn't say she does it perfectly, but she's doing it period, which at that point is unheard of. Like you didn't talk to women, you talked about them. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the things that really struck me about her was mostly is that she wasn't in the game of trying to stir shit up. She wanted Mm -hmm. to actually educate people on what it is to be a woman and what if they had the same mental capacity, you know, (laughs) like, like it's, it's not even like she's questioning it, but she says almost explicitly, she's like, you haven't even given us the option. You've just assumed that we don't. Yeah. yeah. So maybe like, let's say, let's say for like pity's sake, even that you like give us the choice. If we don't, then that's fine. We continue on the way things are, 
But if you were to give every woman in this country the same opportunities that you give men and the same options that you give men, you'd be like greatly surprised. That's one of the first, like one of the first kind of like really aggressive paragraphs with like a lot of little hyphens and and exclamation points that she has where she's like, just give us a crumb of it and we can show (laughs) you how ready we are for this. Well, it's almost like, and it's, I think it's so interesting because this is one of those moments where she is talking to like the male audience. Like it's like a misuse of power. Like, Mm -hmm. um, she's kind of saying like, you know, uh, one of my favorite quotes, she says, quote, who made man the exclusive judge if women partake with him, the gift of reason. Right. So she's kind of calling men out for exploiting their power in society to kind of pass judgment on women. Um, And I think she's tying that in with religion a little bit as well, because like in the introduction, she says nature or to speak with strict propriety, God has made all things right. But man has sought him out many inventions to mar the work. And so I think that like she's kind of trying to say, like kind of trying to say like this kind of power that men have over women in society to kind of uh, like oppress them is this power, whatever they're trying to decide and manage and maintain um, like women, it, this power should lie solely in the hands of God. I think it's like, yeah, she's kind of asserting that in God's eyes, women are equal. So they're subject to the same moral law and thus they kind of, they should like, it's almost like calling men out and saying like, you're denying women their natural God-given rights. Yeah. And so therefore you're committing a sin. It's like, it's really rhetorically yeah. brilliant, I think. Well, and on top of that, um, looking like kind of like stepping back from just looking at her for a moment, the 18th century when she's writing this is like the age of rationality, the age mm-hmm. of reason. Mm-hmm. And so what we're seeing culturally is the shift from men needing to be the strong, beefy, uh, I can lift two bags <laughs> of barley over my shoulders kind of things like, <laughs> like that in, its, in itself isn't serving people really anymore. And so one of the recurring things that she'll say is about the way that men are physically superior to women. And I, I do still have issues with that, but she's also writing from this, the point of rationality and reason mm-hmm. where like, yeah. it doesn't necessarily make them any actually better within like a cultural social mm-hmm. context to mm-hmm. be physically stronger than women. And I mean, it's another one of those things where like, we still argue about it today. It's like, yes, there's physiological differences between men and women, whether that makes one of them more superior to the other is up to debate. Yes. Um, because there's things men can't do that we can. Yes. And like I think pushing it's... a watermelon out of. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> um, the, the notion that the way that they're stronger than us and kind of like the everyday kind of like they're, they kind of, they tend to be taller on average, tend to be not always, mm-hmm. um, doesn't necessarily she's she's almost kind of like again like rhetorically like she's just saying like it's not necessary now because her stance is about reason mm-hmm. and rationality and like yes she she melds that in with nature and god but she's like at no at no point does she necessarily say that their physical superiority actually makes them better than women yes exactly yes. um kind of kind of the thought that came up was um also also what's happening culturally in the 18th century, um, philosophically, and just what's kind of happening in the canon of thought, um, between thinkers, right? Like Mm -hmm. Rousseau and, um, 
Addison and Kant is is this individualist individualistic idea, which is almost opening up the door for Wollstonecraft to yeah. let look at herself, right? As yeah. a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, the question of I. Yes. And so and so she wants to be part of that conversation of, okay, so how do I cultivate myself to be as superior as men, right? Mm-hmm. And that is through education and giving being given the opportunity. Um, and I do like, so she kind of to get into a little bit more of like the nitty gritty of this philosophy, um, like Rousseau really believed that, um, passions or I guess trying to remember exactly when, when they speak of passions, that generally means like, it's a good thing. So Rousseau was of the camp that like, essentially, um, we society has kind of degraded society and luxury has degraded um kind of our our kind of inner moral life Mm -hmm. and we were actually better off even though like you know it's the noble savage is the phrase that he kind of coins and uses um but essentially the idea um that he was like a proponent of was the thought that like we were better off in a, a state of nature, whatever that means. Um, but that, you know, so while we may have been like less advanced, we were more happy and more free and passionate. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and what one thing he believed too was passions are what distinguished man from animals mm-hmm. um, because man has the moment to obey impulse or resist it. Mm-hmm. And so that is freedom. Yes is um but what Wollstonecraft um disagreed with him on one thing was that so Rousseau believed in in the perfectibility of man that um you know he could cultivate reason and become um but she believed that the chase was the reward that Mm -hmm. like just be um so like her her idea of being becoming perfect and enlightened was having practice, um, being able to cultivate reason through experience. And one needs the opportunity to have that right in order for them to have the, the experience in order to cultivate. I, I keep saying the same word, but it's there. Um, no, I <laughs> mean, just, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a really good word saying. for the, for the yeah. it's empirical, it's, it's like empirical knowledge, right? Like yeah. you're through mm-hmm. experience, you get to know yourself and the world around you. This yeah. is like major in that time period. Yeah. And it, and it allows people to be, be, um, have agency over, mm-hmm. over themselves and their lives, um, which make them better people morally, according to Wollstonecraft. I find that interesting bringing it into kind of like a modern context because um so like this big buzzword for progressives nowadays is like be woke stay woke yeah you got to be woke um but what people don't know for the most part for the most part i'm like i'm Mm -hmm. this is not new um but the word actually derives from african-american lingo in like the 80s and the 90s i think it was Mm -hmm. and I'm, i'm happy to be corrected on that um but the int- the original intent of it was to like stay aware mm-hmm. you had to like because you had to stay aware of cops you had to stay aware of 
the white people that were moving into the neighborhood Mm -hmm. suddenly like the sudden influx of that and like Starbucks that were arriving. So it it wasn't intended as this like end point, almost like Rousseau is standing on, but this constant like praxis that Wollstonecraft was emphasizing. That's so interesting in terms of like how Wollstonecraft is envisioning an enlightenment being Mm -hmm. a a, like a journey and a a process. Yeah, like that's a good connection. Well, I find it interesting too because when like we had kind of previously talked about is that she doesn't just walk the or she doesn't just talk the talk she walks the walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She her and like Godwin specifically like they had their their philosophies and they chose the life to live by it. And so it's it's not just that she was like touting all of this stuff and then one day got married and became the the docile wife. Even after I'm- she got married, they were still very actively practicing these things. And I'm pretty sure that they lived in separate homes. I yeah. mean, I'm also happy to be corrected on that, but I'm pretty sure they lived in separate homes and they had a really kind of open household. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, obviously we all know that, you know, Mary Shelley, um, like when she gave birth to Mary Shelley, you know, she passed a few days later, um, but it was like this very kind of salon style household. And we can imagine that being still present before her death, I think, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like she was very open to being in dialogue and talking about these things with groups of people who also wanted to talk about them. Mm-hmm. I think she was very conscious in a way that like the male philosophers in this sphere weren't of social conditioning, mm-hmm. you know, and yes. that's like in a much more critical way than they were. Like they could tout all of this stuff that they wanted, but th- at the end of the day, they came back and they treated their wives the same shitty way that their neighbors who weren't philosophers were, or they treated black people the same shitty way that their uneducated neighbors did as well. Like mm-hmm. it, it's, it's just on this whole new level of like, they would recognize yeah. that things are social conditioning, but they're like, but that's because yeah. it's the natural order of things. We're just reinforcing the natural order mm-hmm. where she recognizes yeah. it as a very human imp- yeah. imposition. I think, I think it's safe to say too, that even the, even the, the white men that she was um, surrounding herself with who were very, um, radical thoughts, you know, they, they still, they're British white men. Like they're, yeah. you know, it's like, and, like, and, and they, yeah. and to recognize that, you know, and, and it, it appalls me that, you know, people today say, well, I just don't understand. I've literally heard people say, I just don't understand what Wollstonecraft, she would, she wasn't saying anything new, you know, and at the time she was, yeah. But and she absolutely was. And I think part of being stripped from the canon has really affected yes, modern yeah. scholars today in this way, because we're not like we're the conversation about how, you know, how to be free mentally is um, happening much later, I, uh, much later than I think it should have um, mm-hmm. that that conversation um, that she was able to have with white men because because she was a white woman. Like, yeah, yes, she was a woman, but she was still privileged to be in those groups of people who um, believed in the same yeah. things that she did. But she was able to assert her theory on um, on education as being kind of the the cornerstone of yeah. change and independence. That's what I mean too. Is her conception of social conditioning, mm-hmm. I think heavily, heavily relies on her opinions and her experience when it comes to education. Cause she was also privileged in that way. 
she did have yeah. a, a pretty good education for somebody of her standing, um, being a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's also like a reason why she engages with social conditioning and with education so mm-hmm. much differently because she saw firsthand how different it was for her. Yeah, exactly. Women. Yeah. And I think that like, well, it's interesting. And I, and I would be interested in hearing you guys thoughts on this. Like, I, it's interesting that there isn't really a conversation of like class going on here, even though it's mm-hmm. clearly something that is her audience is very clearly middle to upper mm-hmm. class women. Um, mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, middle to upper class men. And it's interesting to think about just generally, like as an aside, like, you know, who is she writing to and how are these things getting discussed and by whom, like, you know, because it's like, you know, how, how quickly did this, you know, I, I'm interested in like, and maybe you guys have an answer for this, like how quickly did it spread? Like how popular was it um, at the time? Um, like, those are some questions that I have just generally, but I, I do think like, it's very obvious that she is like targeting a very specific like class of women mm-hmm. who yeah. I think, you know, probably are within similar kind of means as, as she is. And that's why she feels like maybe the need to teach them, I guess, mm-hmm. um, because she feels that I, and I think she just is just in general frustrated with like, I think in, in a similar vein to Rousseau, she's frustrated with like luxury and excess. And yeah. you can see that in like her kind of asides, her like empirical observations where she's denigrating like women of luxury, women of taste, um, mm-hmm. like taste being this like kind of socially constructed idea for her that men mm-hmm. have decided like, you know, women should be into, you know, makeup and clothing and they should be coquettes and they should, you know, act a certain way um, and act as if they didn't have a brain Um, and so like, yeah, I think for her, like she is interested in, I think both demonstrating how women can think in a logical kind of more empirically, uh, driven way Mm -hmm. by like, like in a meta way by publishing this, by being able to get kind of get this Mm -hmm. out there. It is like proof, you know, proof in the pudding that it is possible to kind of like to, to, to do this and to think this way. Um, but she is of course also like very kind of uh, you know, satirical and harsh on women. And I think it's because, you know, I think part of it is her kind of demonstrating like, okay, kind of like almost like a wake up call. Like women need to Mm -hmm. rethink what they think taste is because it's almost like a brainwashing for them. I think. Yeah. I don't know what you guys like think about all of that. I know I just word vomited. No, (laughs) No, I love it. I love all those thoughts. Um, (laughs) there was one line and I, I'm mad at myself now for not marking it. But she has one line and it, it's kind of like in a previous, like in a just previous paragraph, she had said something similar where she talks about like the luxury and the taste and the coquettishness. But then pretty quickly after that, she acknowledges the fact that we're also doing these kinds of things to survive. Mm-hmm. It's, yes, not necess- she does. it's not that we want to be like this and maybe some women do. And she's like, that's whatever. But when you're only giving us this option, you're very much creating an environment where it's unsafe for us to do otherwise. Mm-hmm. And so she's at the same time, like this, the book is itself, the, the vindications is itself this act of practicing what you preach. Yeah, just like definitely. Doing it, like you said. Um, and so she's in the fact of just like putting it out there. She's saying we can do more. 
we just need somebody to hold to like to hold our hand and do it with us because it's it's not social conditioning if it's only you doing it yes of course go ahead go ahead I am an awesome like, yes yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I think I found the quote and you can tell me if it's the quote or not but I love this quote and I think it's like so relevant for just thinking like in terms of social construct and like ideology being 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 kind of a man-made thing that we can rethink and re, re reconfigure which I think is exciting um yeah so one of the um one of the quotes is considering the length of time that women have been dependent is it surprising mm-hmm. that some of them hug their chains and fawn like the spaniel yep these dogs observes a, a naturalist that would have been kind of like a scientist at the time um, at first keep their ears erect, but custom has superseded nature and a token of fear is become a beauty. Right. So like custom is this kind of social, it's this social custom that's dictated by man. Right. So I think it's just so interesting the way like it, and I think she has other quotes too, where it's like, you know, women, um, learn to like, um, adorn their cage, right. Mm-hmm. Um, adorn the cage that they live in. And the, it's in these moments where like um, specifically, I think connecting it to the figure of a dog and kind of thinking about domestication and how domestication is not, it's a social, it's a socially constructed human endeavor to, you know, create animals to be within a certain kind of human, human accepted construct that we find acceptable. Right. And so I think that like alluding to the dog in that, in that way kind of helps maybe her readers or helps us like think along the lines of like, what is, what is natural in this Mm -hmm. moment and Mm -hmm. what is socially constructed. And then tying it back just real briefly and quick to the question of like man versus woman uh, audience. Yeah. Is that because this, this treatise is engaging with both audiences regardless of whether or not this is directed at women to kind of like open their eyes or directed at men to be like, look, the men are going to read it. The men are going to read these parts. And for the, like possibly the first time for some of them, they're going to have to engage with the fact that women are not as pleased with this as they might like. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's the, that's the, you know, the fear becomes beauty, right? Like Mm -hmm. we learn to hug our chains, but that doesn't mean that we're happy with it. I yeah. was just, um, well, I just rewatched The Fall, which is that like yeah. crime drama with uh, Jamie Dornan and Gillian Anderson. And since it's several years old, I'm going to slightly spoil a bit for you. Um, I, for you guys, regardless, like whether or not you've seen it recently and for people listening slash watching. But um, in season two, he kidnaps a woman that he had known previously and people keep being like, why would she just leave? Like, why would she just walk out with him all easy and fine? And it's because we don't generally acknowledge until quite recently, it's like in, in uh, psych kind of mm-hmm. conversations, the, we always think fight or flight, mm-hmm. but freeze is like a very... Mm-hmm. common one just as well yeah like it's it's a survival it's like a trauma response mm-hmm. you your body just kind of convinces you that you're not in danger and you don't react and you just do what they say mm-hmm. and that is like like as we as I was watching this I just thought about kind of that conversation that she has where it's like you make your chains look pretty mm-hmm. because at that point you can't conceive of any way out of that out of that system mm-hmm 
Yeah. And and when Wollstonecraft speaks to women, she's giving them a door. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Like this, adding this to the conversation, which again, even though it was re- removed from the canon, but her attempt to add this to the conversation of the question of I is that like adding that door. Yeah. To answer your question kind of about like thoughts on class and yeah. how... Um, I don't know if you were referring to just maybe just because she was talking to like the middle classes. Uh-huh. Um, but my, th- my thoughts on that were like, I think the 18th century was very much, I mean, and we can see this with the revolution, um, boiling in terms of class structures. Yeah. Um, yeah, and absolutely. the bourgeoisie was kind of this growing thing due to actually due to consumerism. Yep. Yeah. Um, we're like we're definitely seeing <laughs> this like history repeating itself. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Consumerism creates middle class, which creates um, almost a weird mode of change um, mm-hmm. because the laboring classes have no power or rights, yeah. and the court has no uh, passion to change anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the bourgeoisie kind of see them; they see themselves as kind of distinguished from corruption, but also distinguished from being idle, which is yeah. strange because they're actually the most idle. <laughs> it's like the, I think it's the labor- Christian yeah. um, kind of like mindset. It's also like a very kind of like growth of capitalism, like the root of capitalism that kind mm-hmm. of like, we need to be productive all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But yeah, so um so in, you know, in the French Revolution, when that kind of started breaking out, a lot of the dissenters in the English were really, um, really excited. And the and and then we can kind of move into kind of the the Burke um, conversation. But we had we have like a lot of um, people speaking about like, well, what's going on? How yeah. are they like, you know, when um, I think it was when they uh, the French published the declaration of the citizen and man or something like that, um, where it gave rights to, um, people. Um, (laughs) was it the French national convention? They like abolished the monarchy the same time that this like text came out. I love it. You say abolish the monarchy instead of just like beheaded. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Abolish is a much PG version. Yeah. (laughs) Once again, we have gotten a little too into our conversation. And in order to make it easier on our lovely listeners, all of you, we have split this one into two episodes. Because we love this lady. Yes, yes. (laughs) Um, So join us and Taylin again next week for the continuation of this discussion. All right. See you next week. Happy reading. Happy reading. Bye. Bye.